So, this morning we're going to continue um, book overviews that we've begun over the last couple months. We've done Genesis, we've done Exodus, we've done Leviticus, and this morning I'd like for us to do an overview of Numbers. As we go through the book of Numbers, obviously I want to paint the picture of what's happening in the book of Numbers, but I also want to maybe focus on a theme of Numbers, and that's this idea of God testing his people um, and trying them as he works with them through the book of Numbers. Um, so we're going we're gonna to learn maybe the overview of the book or refresh some of the details for most of us here um, and focus on kind of that theme as we move throughout the book. We've talked about the book of Exodus, and really when we talked about that, we also did a lesson on the book of Exodus, and Exodus really serves as a really complete and in that way, perfect demonstration of God's salvation of his people, how he exercises his power, how he saves from slavery, how he delivers to, the, to his promises, to a new place of rest. Um, and, then, and there's so many images in that and so many examples of how God works. And even spiritually today, we made the connection, the lessons, maybe uh, verses that Peter wrote about in his letters, that how we are the spiritual people of God and how we have been delivered from slavery and all those kinds of things. We look at Leviticus and we see that book and we see really how God desires his people to be separate and holy and sanctified and how really even they're supposed to be that, but more importantly, they regard God as those things and how special God is. Well, the book of Numbers really is a book about trial. It's a book about faith. And so in those ways, just as the previous Exodus and Leviticus showed us, the, you know, showed us their themes, Numbers really is, I think, the equivalent of we as Christians and how we deal with tests of our faith and how we deal with our obedience to God and following Him in our various wildernesses, if we want to put it that way. Um, and so I think the book of Numbers is helpful in that way, and as we study when we go through this overview, maybe we can make some of those applications as we go through. Um, all right, so the book of Numbers. Um, the book of Numbers is called the book of Numbers because I'm sure most of us are familiar when we do our yearly reading and we're going through Numbers, we're like, ah, the census, my favorite part of the Old Testament, right? The book of Numbers begins that way, and it almost ends that way as well. In chapter 26, there's another census, and so that's where the name, the English name at least, Numbers, comes from, these two censuses that almost act as bookends. Um, but really, in the Hebrew, the name is in the wilderness. Whatever the Hebrew is for that, it means in the wilderness, which probably for most of us is more descriptive of what's actually occurring in the book. Um, it's primarily dominated by Israel's time wandering around in various wildernesses um, that God is leading them through. So anyway, that's a little bit of a background there. The author, according to Numbers 33, seems to be Moses. Um, it says that God told Moses to write down the things that he had seen and done. Um, that's in Numbers 33, 1 through 2. And so it's a little bit of maybe some of the, the naming and the author. And the timing actually begins. Um, Exodus 19, where Israel comes to the Mount of Sinai, Mount Sinai. They actually haven't moved from that position for the rest of Exodus all the way through Leviticus, and the beginning of Numbers starts there. And so um, if you're like me, I have a hard time picturing the geography and the timing of things. They, they're still there at the base of the mountain when, when Numbers starts. 
Numbers actually spans about 40 years. The whole book spans about 40 years. And it starts with them in Sinai, what is traditionally kind of the lower peninsula between Egypt and Israel. And it ends with them right on the cusp of the land of Israel coming from the east, so on the other side of the Dead Sea. That's where it ends. And so if you can picture that in your mind, if that's helpful for you at all, um, that's kind of the the general geography and timing of the book. Um, All right, with that said, um, we'll begin the overview. In in Numbers chapter 1, we have the census as the name of the book takes its name from. We have a census of the people of Israel. And it ends up being that the people end up numbering 603,550 in verse 46. And of course, that's counting men 20 years old and upward. Um, and that's all it's counting. So, you know, in our minds, we might more or less double that number, and we might have a better estimation of the traveling group of the Israelites. Um, and so with that said, it's really interesting as we come to chapter 26 a little bit later, the number actually is less. Um, there's less people in 26 than there is in 1, What you think roughly 40 years have passed. There should be a lot more, and I think we see why there aren't a lot more as we work through the book of Numbers. Um, all right. With that said, um, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 10, around verse 10, I kind of summed up this section as just the camp and its people. You have the, the census in chapter 1. You have the discussion of Levites at the end of that, the arrangement of the camp, who the Levites are, all those sorts of things through those ten chapters. Um, we have even uh, jobs of certain people like the Kohathites, uh, I think is how you say that. Another group of people that apparently were lumped in with the Israelites, we have their jobs explained. We have how they're supposed to treat certain situations explained. So I just kind of sum that up as the camp and its people. And I don't really have a whole lot to say about that section. You can go and read it and find out you know, how who stayed where in the camp and how many people were in that tribe and those sorts of things from those chapters. But I actually want to begin the details of this uh, overview beginning in chapter 10. And I want to begin in verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11, it says, In the second year, in the second month, and this is counting from the time they arrived at Mount Sinai. So that's helpful for you. The second year... In the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. All right. So this is the moment where they finally move from Sinai, and God starts actually leading them toward the promised land, which would have been more or less directly north of them. Um, I think this is significant because... God spent, if we think about this, half of the book of Exodus, all of the book of Leviticus, and up till now in Numbers, spending time with them, teaching them his law, teaching him his statutes, having them build the tabernacle, having God dwell among them, teaching them all the rules. And I mean, this took time. It took a year and some change to do all of these things, to teach all of these things, and we have some of that recorded for us. Um, And I think that's important as we move through numbers because they've had time to learn and they've had time to grow and know what God wanted. And then we're going to see them be tested in that through the book of numbers. 
and ultimately we see that they don't really do very well with the tests, uh, which I think we have some lessons to learn from that. All right, so God spent time with them, teaching them in chapter 10, verse 11, and they move on from Mount Sinai. Um, actually, in chapter 11 is the first kind of application I want to make um, in this story that we're given about the Israelites. Chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because of the fire of the Lord burned among them. And Taborah, you might have a footnote, says it means burning. Um, this is one instance of very many of similar occasions. Um, the people have a knack for complaining. It's interesting to me that it just says that they complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. To me, I don't know exactly how this manifests itself. Minimally, they complain to Aaron and Moses. They make their complaints known to, we might call the ambassador or the spokesman of the Lord in their camp. They make it known to them. I don't know if anything else is entailed in this complaining. If there's, I imagine there's murmuring amongst the people because it seems to be a consensus. But I also imagine maybe in their prayers or in their personal conversations with God, it's tainted or twisted by this overarching uh, theme of complaint. I don't really know. But on some level, they're complaining to the Lord via Moses and Aaron about their misfortunes, whatever those are. Uh, and we see that God doesn't really take to that very kindly. Um, we see, in fact, that his anger was kindled and it says the fire of the Lord, not the fire of circumstance or chance, the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. So I think some of the simple lessons in this are God doesn't take to complainers very well and, in fact, punish them for that, right? Um, question for us are, is, are we, are we a complainer? Um, you know, when God is leading us, and taking us somewhere via his commandments and his guidance, do we complain about that? Whatever our reason is, I mean, I'm sure Israel had some legitimate complaints, right? Um, it's not comfortable being in a camp, and it's not convenient to move around a whole lot. It's not comfortable to have to follow a cloud or a pillar of fire and not be able to talk to the person who's leading you yourself. That's not convenient either. Whatever their complaint was, it wasn't necessary, nor was it appreciated by the Lord. And I think complaints really come from that place, right? It comes from a place of underappreciation or ingratitude. Um, when we think back on Exodus, they haven't moved from Mount Sinai until more or less this point. And God has been teaching them from Mount Sinai. And you remember Mount Sinai, they weren't even willing to come near the mountain because they were scared of the Lord. God said, don't touch the mountain because you'll die. They've been in that place for a year. And then, as soon as they leave, they have the nerve to then complain against that God that they've been learning from at the foot of the mountain. And so I think a lesson in this, too, is how easily we can forget our blessings and our teachings when things become inconvenient or uncomfortable. And we can, as soon as we move away from the mountain, whatever that mountain of teaching is in our lives, we can start to complain. And, and God doesn't 
appreciate that. So I think this is a lesson, not only for Israel, but for us, that when things are difficult, when things are inconvenient, we don't need to forget from where we're coming, i.e. the Mount of Sinai, God's teaching, and let that rule our hearts. So God punishes them in this and says, the fire of the Lord burned among them. And it actually goes on to continue with the complaining. They actually, in chapter 11, complain about food. Um, and God actually provides them in this way. He, it's a story where he begins to provide manna from heaven for them. Gives them very in specific instructions on how to, uh, I guess you could say, reap that, even though it's just kind of on the ground. How they could gather that up. And then, in fact, they say, hey, that's not enough. We want meat. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. And God delivers quail to them. He delivers this meat from heaven to them. And so in chapter 11, we see this theme already arising. People complaining, people complaining. God responds with fire one time. God responds with bread and meat another time. And as we continue in verse 31... Before that, God had given very specific instructions in how to gather the things that he had blessed them with. In verse 31, they break that. Beginning in verse 31 of chapter 11, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side, and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers, um, and, the, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. While the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was Kibroth Hadava, because they were buried, there they buried the people who had the craving. All right. And so that name, that weird name, Kibrath Hadava, means graves of craving. So in a way, you could say that the people's desire, their cravings, killed them. Um, and so God had said, you know, I'm going to give you bread, and I'm going to give you quail. But don't, and as we read the commands just before this, don't store it up. Only take for what you need. Don't be selfish with that seems as if in verse 31 that they break that commandment by storing up. It says the least had gathered ten homers, which I don't know the exact translation of that as far as meat is concerned, but it says a homer is about 220 liters. So to think to gather ten of those in the least, that's a lot of meat. And so it seems as if the people's problem here was that they weren't trusting that the Lord would provide it again, right? They were saying, I'm going to take what I need now because I'm not sure it's going to come again. I don't know when it's going to come again, when God said, I'm going to keep doing this. Um, and so it's interesting to me that God even answers this complaint with a blessing in the bread and the meat, that he's gracious in that way. But then sometimes don't we use God's blessings that he responds to us favorably, and we, we still ruin them by not paying attention to the details of the blessings. Um, you might be able to think of various ways that, that you've done that in your life or you've seen people do that around you. Um, God has provided something good for us, and we kind of taint it with our own selfishness or our own lack of faith. Um, we see the people doing that in this instance. And so again, this is an opportunity for the people to really show that they believe what God says, and they fail in it. 
And so God punishes them, and again it comes in a really pleasant form, the form of a plague. Um, so God has burned them, burned a portion of the camp. He sent a plague on a portion of the camp. Um, and so we see them, that they've failed two tests up to this point, right? Since leaving Mount Sinai, they've failed two points of testing by God, all right? So moving forward from this, um, move us to chapter 13 here. Chapter 13. Um, in, in the interim, in chapter 12, we in fact see Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, rebel against him. They're tired of seeing the authority of Moses. They feel like, why is he being exalted? Um, why is God speaking to him and working through him? And so we see their failure to pass that test. Um, we see them fail in that, and God punishes them for that in chapter 12. So moving into chapter 13, we have what is kind of maybe the most famous test of numbers, um, one that really dictates their history for several years, and really is a huge point of teaching in Israel's overall history. This molded their path in a lot of ways. Um, chapter 13 is the instance where they get to the edge of the land of promise, the land of Canaan. In fact, it says at the very last verse of chapter 12, verse 16, the people set out from Hazeroth where they were previously and camped in the wilderness of Paran. And the wilderness of Paran is on like the northernmost edge um, of the peninsula that they had been in on Sinai. And really, it's on the cusp of the southernmost edge of the land of Canaan. I mean, it's kind of that gray area between you go much further north and you're in Canaan land. Um, and so they're right there at it. They're right there at the cusp. And God tells them to send out spies into the land. Now, we, we're probably all pretty familiar with this story. Uh, one of the interesting things that God doesn't tell them to do when they're looking at the land is tell me whether or not we can conquer it. He does say, go look at it, you know, confirm that it's a fruitful land, bring back some of the, you know, some of the people say bring back some of the fruit. I mean, he has a lot of things to look for, but he doesn't say give me your opinion on whether or not we can take the land. Um, but the people feel the need to express their opinion in that, right? Um, this is really another great opportunity for the people to have grown not only from their teaching at Mount Sinai for a year and a month, uh, but also they're, they're learning from these failures. Their immediate past, these couple of failures that we've seen, they should have grown and learned from that. And so they fail this test as well. Um, they don't really seem to be learning. Now before, <laughs> in my mind, I start thinking, man, these Israelites, they're so dumb. They're not learning from anything. I mean, I don't really want to divulge all the ways that I've done kind of a similar thing because I would be embarrassed. Um, but we do that all the time, right? We make a mistake, and we make the same mistake, and we make the same mistake over and over and over again. And it doesn't manifest itself in the exact same way every time, right? The first time, they complained about their misfortunes. It's a little bit different than hoarding up quail. And then giving a bad report about land they're spying out. Those are three very different things, but the fundamental problem was the same each time, right? They didn't really believe what God said. They didn't really believe what God was doing. 
And so in that way, we make the same mistakes. We might not have faith in God, so we mess this thing up or we mess that thing up. And so we can be like the people of Israel oftentimes. And so the people of Israel, in chapter 13, it really says that they failed to give a good report of the land, save two, right? Or, um, and so this defines this generation of Israel. This failure of faith defines that generation. You know, I, I, I've had friends that have expressed, you know, their failures to me or we've talked about problems we've had. You know, with your close friends, you do that, right? Um, I don't, th- I, I have one friend here recently who's made some really big mistakes in his life. And, um, you know, sometimes you make mistakes and it takes a minute to kind of change direction. And it's not a big deal, right, in that sense. There's not a lot of long-term problems. But then some decisions you make or some mistakes you make affect your, you and your life, or affect your generation, if you want to put it that way, you and your generation. I mean, I, have, I had a friend here recently make some of those mistakes that are going to affect him the rest of his life. Um, and it's really heartbreaking when those mistakes happen. And imagine Israel makes some mistakes here that not just affect one person's lifetime, but affect a whole generation's worth of life. Um, and that's what happens here in chapter 13. They give a bad report of the land in the sense of, we can't take it. We're not going to be able to conquer the land that God has promised us. Which is a failure to include in the equation God's ability to do so, like he did in Egypt. So chapter 14, you might have a heading over your chapters. I don't know how everyone's Bibles reads. But you might have a chapter heading over 14, something about people rebelling. Uh, something along those lines. Mine has the people rebel. And that's more or less what happens. Um, It says in verse 1, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And I appreciate James reading this passage for us earlier because I think it's a really pivotal uh, section, not in Israel's history, not just in Israel's history, I should say, but really in all of us, right? Whenever we encounter difficulties or challenges in our faith and we think, this isn't working out, we have a temptation to kind of come to these same conclusions, right? Um, Look at some of these things that they're saying in verse 2. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Basically saying it would have been better if we had never even begun to follow the Lord, right? If we had just stayed back there. Very similar question we we kind of despair sometimes, right? Man, if I had just never done this whole Christianity bit, I wouldn't be worrying about this. I would have been back here doing whatever I was doing before, right? Look at the next question. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. It would have been better if I had only gotten so far in it, right? If I had started to follow the Lord and just kind of gotten to a point and just chilled out there instead of really going all the way, right? If I just found some level of comfort in it, I could have just stayed there. The next part is, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Now, that's a question I've asked myself sometimes. Why is God doing this to me? Why is he making me go through this? Or why do I have to put up with this? Or why am I not allowed to do 
this thing or that thing. We may look at Israel and say, man, this is silly Israel. But we ask the same kind of questions a lot of times in moments where we despair or moments where our faith is not where it needs to be. But unfortunately for Israel, their problem is they actually take action, right? You know, there's moments where as humans we can despair and we hit kind of a low point sometimes emotionally. We might ask ourselves these questions. The key is here in verse 4, and they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It seems that they have this desperation and they make a move on it, right? Um, you know, sometimes when, we, when we're low in faith, when we're struggling, you know, we have kind of that tipping point where we act or we don't act. Like, am I going to actually do something about this? I.e., pray, find a brother and sister to kind of talk things out with, read scripture, you know, do what I need to do to encourage myself to continue on, or am I going to do something I need to do to start heading back? Am I going to, you know, cut off all my friends, or am I going to give up on God, or am I, you know, as Job kind of says and his friends, curse God and die, is that going to be my route? We, we all have that decision to make. It seems like Israel made the poor decision. They say, we are going to resolve to choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Ends up being that Moses speaks on behalf of the people for mercy from God and is able to save them in this sense from immediate destruction. But God ends up telling them, you're going to wander in the wilderness. You're going to get exactly what you asked for and exactly what you feared um, in a lot of ways, you're going to die in the wilderness. This whole generation is going to die in the wilderness. And those kids that you were afraid were going to die in the wilderness, that were going to be eaten up in this land, are going to be the ones that inherit the land. So God kind of turns their worries on their heads, right? Um, and so that, that's really the end of chapter 14. And so Israel regrets their decision. They decide to, oh, let's go be zealous for the Lord at the end of chapter 14. And let's go fight a battle that God hasn't asked us to fight and they get destroyed. Um, that's kind of another pitfall for us, right? Let's go fight. In my effort to save face, I'm going to go beyond what God has asked me to do, or go beyond what God has commanded me to do, into something I'm not prepared for, I'm not ready to handle, and it destroys us. I mean, that's what happens at the end of chapter 14, right? Moses told the words of the people, and this is verse 39 of chapter 14. He told the words of the people, and the words of the people were, Everything before this where God says, you're going to die in the wilderness, your kids are going to inherit the land, you're going to wander. Bad news for them. He tells them those words, and they mourned greatly, and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. When we make bad decisions, uh, we have to deal with the repercussions of those decisions. We We can't, in a sense, pretend they never happened. Right? And that's what Israel tried to do. Oh, we flubbed. Let's just pretend it didn't happen and go live out the promise God had previously given to us, ignoring what he's now revealed. Right? That's exactly what happens. All right, now we're willing to go fight for the land because we would rather not die back there. In fact, it sounds better to just kind of go do this now. Well, they try to do it. And it says, Moses says, Why are you transgressing the covenant of the Lord? when that will not succeed. Don't go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. Verse 44, But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, 
although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. Sometimes, like the Israelites, we're presumptuous. When we make a failure, we say, all right, I'm going to go do this thing under our own, with the guise of God's with me. I'm going to go do whatever that looks godly. God's with me, right? Well, God defeats us in those kinds of moments, and we see that literally with Israel. They're beaten back from the land. They end up being further away from the land in Hormah than they were in the plains. And so that's an interesting example there for us. So moving on uh, from chapters 13 to 14, we spent a good amount of time there, but it's such a pivotal moment in Israel's history in the book of Numbers. Um, There's a lot to learn from that. So this whole first section up to this point, through chapter 14, is kind of the journey to the promised land, right? They move from Mount Sinai up to where God said, go spot out the land, I'm about to give it to you, to when they're defeated and God says, you're not going to have it in this generation. This next section, uh, from the end of chapter 14 through chapter 25, I kind of titled Rejection from the Promised Land. So they go to the Promised Land and they're rejected from the Promised Land. A lot of time passes in the book of Numbers in this section. Um, Between chapter 19 and 20, about 40 years pass. Um, It doesn't read like it. If you're just reading the book of Numbers, it just looks like a sequence of events. One thing after another, after another, after another. But up through like 15 through 19 is when they're immediately rejected from the land, is some events consequently from that. Between chapters 19 and 20, they've been in the wilderness for, you know, 39, 40 years. And then chapter 20 is them moving out of the wilderness back to the edge of the promised land. So I don't know if that's helpful for you when you're reading numbers. But that's where a bunch of time passes, is right in that gap between 19 and 20. So anyway, with that said, that was helpful for me when I was reading about that and kind of got that solidified in my head. Um, Moving forward in chapter 15, I'm going to touch these things very quickly because there's a lot of stories and numbers. Um, Chapter 15, or sorry, chapter 16, we have a man named Korah who stirs up a lot of people and sort of into a frenzy and kind of into this rebellion against Moses. <sighs> what a temptation, right? When things go bad, to rally people around the bad thing that happened to you and reject, um, you know, God or whatever. And that's basically what Korah did. He said, Moses, you must not, you're not any better than us. You know, you aren't supposed to be our leader. Well, God ends up responding to that by swallowing them into the earth opening the earth up under their feet and swallowing them. Um, And I think, you know, that teaches us a lot about what it means to rebel and to have pride and to question God's decisions in things. Uh, Moving on from chapter 16, uh, we'll actually move to chapter 20. The waters of Meribah, um, as your Bible may title it in chapter 20. God gives a command to Moses and Aaron to speak to the rock for it to deliver water to the people. And 
we know this story, uh, Moses actually ends up striking the rock and his frustration with the people and maybe in some pride of his position, I'm not sure. But for whatever reason, he ends up striking the rock and God punishes him by saying, keep in mind, they're on their way to the land of Canaan. And he says, you're not going to be able to enter into the land because of that moment. I don't know the best applications for this, you know, for really any of these stories for each and every one of us. For me, I see in this, you know, maybe as a teacher or as a leader of other people spiritually, you know, in your family, with your friends, things like that, we need to be careful to really pay attention to what God's teaching us. Moses, I mean, I really can't think of anyone in the Old Testament law that's more important than Moses. As far as to the Israelite people, his role in the works of God, things like that. But this, you know, to us, this one little thing was a really big smudge on his story. I mean, it ended up being a really big thing. And I think that tells me the details matter. Every little thing I do matters. Um, Especially when God gives me a command that's pretty explicit or clear. And for whatever reason, in whatever way, I decide to change it, to break it. Um, We see the consequences of that for Moses. And in a way, that was Moses' test, right? In his frustration or in his pride, he let that get the best of him. And he didn't prove God true in striking the rock. And look at what it says about um, what God's complaint is when Moses strikes the rock. It says in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you didn't believe me, it was an issue of belief. You know, I don't think about all my problems when I, you know, break the commands of God that way, but fundamentally it's an issue to believing that God would work that way, the way he said he would work. To uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. And when we break God's commandments and other people see us break them, it says to other people, God isn't holy. He isn't special. I can do whatever I want to do, even though he said to do something else. And so those are kind of two fundamental issues, right? When we do something against God, we need to think of it as, I must have not really believed in him, and I guess I didn't really regard him as holy like he is. Um, So those are the lessons I get out of that passage. Moving forward, chapter 21 out of the people's, um, well, look at verse 5, chapter 21, verse 5. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us uh, out, up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. Forty years later, the kids are repeating the same complaint their fathers had given years and years before, Right? Um, And God, you know, we know the story where he sends serpents that bite them and he raises a bronze serpent and uh, if they look upon it, it heals them. And how that really, even in the New Testament, apparently was a shadow of what Jesus would do for people. Um, You know, again, we see this failure in this test. They had an opportunity to praise God for their deliverance and their care and they fail in that. Um, Moving forward from there... uh, Balak and Balaam, chapters 22 through 24, if you remember that story, the king Balak hires the prophet Balaam 
to curse Israel as they're passing through the land on the way to the land of Canaan because he's scared of them. And Balaam doesn't, can't do it, literally can't do it, even though he seems to want to do it because it's going to bring in money and maybe some prestige or whatever with the king, I don't know. He can't do it. And he literally says, I can only speak the things God has given me to speak. Um, and so that's an interesting exchange about how, you know, when we're tested, do we really reflect and think about the things God wants, or do we succumb to money or peer pressure or whatever with the things people want? In chapter 25, uh, you have this instance where there's Baal worship among the people. In fact, um, there's not only Baal worship, there is an outsider coming into the camp, a non-Israelite coming into the camp, and what all that means. And so Phineas ends up taking that into his own hands to more or less deliver the judgments in, um, of God, and he ends up killing those who have broken the rules. And he kills the adulterers and kills the foreigner. I mean, God ends up praising him for that, and it's kind of a weird story to me, but to me, I think it says, like, even when it's difficult, you know, even when it's not the popular thing to do, are we willing to be like Phineas in that we pursue God's commandments? Um, in chapter 26, we see the new census. Ultimately, it points out to us that in verse 51... It was 601,730 people. That's roughly 4,000 less people than 40 years ago. Um, which, if you look at like the global count, typically goes up every year. <laughs> this is not what should have happened, right? Um, but they had been learning lessons the hard way, and God had been punishing them. All right, so with all of that said, the last section of the book of Numbers... To me, we had the journey to the promised land all the way up through chapter 14. We had the rejection from the promised land, the end of 14 through 25. The last section is 26 through 36, and I think I just summed it up as the reorganization of Israel. You have a new generation, you have new leaders, you have a new census. So to me, it's just, here's the organization of Israel now. Who's here, who's leading, what, who's in what tribe, all those sorts of things. Again, in chapter or 27, Joshua is appointed to succeed Moses. In 28, we have the reiteration of offerings, um, sacrifices, feasts, all these kinds of things. To me, it's kind of reorganizing, re-energizing group. And at the very end of the book, um, chapters 31 through 36, I think this is a little bit of a, a story of redemption. Um, for Israel in that they're right on the cusp of the land of promise. Um, what I guess people call like the Transjordan area. They're literally on the other side of the Jordan River to the east of the Dead Sea Valley. And there's, you know, people inhabit that area. And it says in these chapters, like verse 31, I mean chapter 31, there's people inhabiting these areas and Israel, by God's help, defeats them. And more importantly, by God's command, defeats them, or as importantly. So I think this is kind of the moment where they have shown through the years, even though they saw their faults like people, they still complained about the food and things, 
they've grown in some capacity. Remember the first time they approached land, they're not willing to trust that God is with them and to conquer and to take over the land. In chapter 31, it seems as if God says, hey, you're here on the edge of the land. Go exact vengeance on these people who hurt you in the past. I'm with you. They actually do it this time. And I think that's kind of our story, right? Like we make, we may make some mistakes and have opportunities to grow with the Lord, but God presents very similar opportunities a lot of the time. You know, you think about maybe one example with me. I remember in high school, I had this really close friend in high school that uh, in high school, we had a lot of similar interests, but religion was not one of them. We just never really talked about religion because I knew he didn't believe in God and I did, and so we just never really broached the subject. You know, I just didn't have the courage to do it. Um, and I remember for years and years and years, we were really close friends, all those sorts of things. We just, that was one thing we just didn't talk about. You know, we were talking about the other night how you don't talk, people say you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics, you don't argue them. Well, that was kind of our <laughs> agreement, you know, we just didn't talk about it. Well, I remember I didn't, and after I graduated, I didn't see him, like just when we graduated, we went our own ways. Well, I bumped into him like two years after graduating high school, and we got talking about things, and in a way, I felt like it was my opportunity to, like, make up for my mistakes of the past, and so, you know, I, and nothing came of it, right? I mean, I don't, as far as I know, I think he's still doing whatever he wants to do, but I had that opportunity, right, to kind of show myself again. I failed the first time, but I had that opportunity to make up for it in a sense, to show that I'd grown, and I think this is kind of Israel's moment in that. Like, you messed it up before, you paid for it, you suffered in the wilderness, that was hard, it was difficult, not a fun time to be. And God brings them right back to almost the same exact situation. And they actually succeed this time. And so I think Numbers, in a lot of ways, is a story of just kind of all of us, even today. We have our challenges and we have our tests and commands of the Lord. And we have to choose if we believe and we trust God is holy. And when we mess up, we have to deal with that, and God shows us the consequences of that. But He always seems to present us with that next opportunity to grow and show our faith. And so that, to me, is what Numbers is all about, is that, that struggle within us to really grow our faith and trust in the Lord. Um, and so hopefully, I, I know Numbers is not the most exciting book to think about sometimes, um, but hopefully, even if you knew pretty much the the, the the book of Numbers and all the details of it. Hopefully this was a helpful lesson for you in that it refocused you or helped you remember some of the things in the book of Numbers. But really, you can see in it that it's about us. It's about people and how we function and how we trust in the Lord and how we exercise our faith and really how God delivers and provides grace and mercy with discipline, as he says in the New Testament, we're his children, and as children, he's going to discipline us to help us grow, right? So, anyway, that was the lesson. Hopefully it was helpful for you. Um, Richard's got the song.